This is Mike Levitt, a co-founder of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to season one of The Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. The ACLC is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating industry readiness for success in value. With its competency-based framework for health value, the ACLC is working with healthcare organizations all over the country to create the workforce of tomorrow. Come join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Today, we had Cheryl Lulius, President and CEO of Medical Home Network and MHN ACO LLC. Cheryl leads, Daniel, the nation's foremost clinically integrated and digitally connected network to improve the health of Medicaid beneficiaries and safety net communities in the greater Chicago area. Truly an outstanding podcast guest today. Definitely, Eric. She's such an innovative healthcare leader. She's driving a culture transformation across her state and across Cook County. She's reshaping care delivery to achieve value through what's a really impressive multi-organization collaboration using models of care that are a little bit different than what people may think of as an ACO traditionally. And all of this powered by data and innovative technology. Her passion for improving provider and patient experience is obvious. And to put it succinctly, MHNACO has really established itself as a beacon of high value. I couldn't agree more. And as I reflect on the conversation with Cheryl today, I think it really takes a village to win this race to value. And I think Cheryl and her team and the work that they've done has really shown great results in the population that is being served in Cook County and the greater Chicago area. I think this podcast episode is really going to enable our listeners to learn more about MHN and how to create their own scalable and replicable approach to population health and value-based care. So let's go ahead and hand it off to Cheryl as she joins us today in this race to value. Cheryl, it is great to hear your voice. It's been a few months since we last visited. I mean, we were working together a while back as you were consulting on a Medicaid ACO project that I was working on in Dallas. And at that time, I learned a great deal about your visionary leadership and safety net transformation. And I'm real excited to have you share your story today with our listeners. Well, thanks, Eric. I'm so thrilled to be here and thanks for the kind words. And I hope we can share some things that inform similar pursuits today. Cheryl, as you are an early pioneer of the Medicaid ACO movement, 
I thought a great way to start our conversation today would be to talk about the history of accountable care and the safety net. In this concept of accountable care in the safety net, this was actually a term that was coined by Elliot Fisher and others in a Dartmouth study that was published by the Commonwealth Fund back in 2013. And in that study, there were four critical success factors outlined for a coalition-based Medicaid ACO. There needs to be aligned leadership through a shared vision, strong governance, a unified strategy for using data, and a sophisticated care coordination infrastructure. When I think of MHN ACO, I think of excellence in all four of those areas, and I'd like to spend time today with you exploring those. Let's begin first with the history of MHN ACO, a wholly provider-owned subsidiary of Medical Home Network with 140,000 Medicaid lives comprised of 11 FQHCs, and three hospital systems that started in 2014. What is the story of how this coalition-based Medicaid ACO was born? Generally, when we think of FQHCs, we think of under-resourced facilities with limited capacity and services, but that model doesn't really work for an organization like MHN that's trying to implement value-based care. How did MHN position itself to build the infrastructure and the team to really deliver on this value-based care agenda? And of course, Cheryl, we want to know how you've performed. What has been the track record in risk-based payment? What are some of the high-level results of your Medicaid ACO in terms of reduction in total cost trends, admissions, and ED visits? So it's been quite a journey. And let me take you back to the beginning. So we started almost 11 years ago. And Medical Home Network, or MHN as we call ourselves, was founded by the Comer Family Foundation. It's a private Chicago foundation, and we were created with the vision to redesign care delivery in the safety net. The Comer Family Foundation, Gary Comer was the founder of Land's End, and he was also the named donor on the University of Chicago Children's Hospital. And when he passed away, his daughter took over the healthcare part of the Comer Family Foundation, and she said bricks and mortar is great, but access and care for under-resourced communities in the safety net is still poor along most measures. So she decided to fund an organization that could do more. And so our goal has always been to build a model of care specifically focused on the part of Chicago that gets the lowest amount of the healthcare dollar but needs it the most. That was our founding vision. So we united disparate healthcare systems, hospitals, federally qualified healthcare center, and some other provider groups with the value of working collectively instead of independently in silos to drive better care and improve the health of the Medicaid population in our geography. So we initially came together to solve a problem, and all of this happened pre the Affordable Care Act, not to form an ACO, but just to figure out how we can collaborate together and figure out how we could work together in a much more integrated fashion. So we started as the foundation-funded pilot. We then became a state Medicaid pilot. And then we formed the ACO in 2014 when Illinois went to manage Medicaid. So a little bit about what we've done, how we've built MHN is we've done this by connecting hospitals, community health centers, mental care providers, and social services to work harmoniously toward improving a person's health. We created a standardized whole person model of care, and we've also created a digitally connected 
clinically integrated delivery systems so we could communicate, collaborate, and coordinate across all venues and settings. You know, as you said, Eric, today we are 14 disparate safety net providers, 11 FQHCs, and three hospital systems. We're at risk for total cost of care for 140,000 lives. And the beauty of what we've done is we can mobilize the right resources for the right patients at the right time and really remove inefficiency and waste in the system and create far greater value. If I could just add something about our results, because they're really not theoretical. We've proven that our type of virtually integrated delivery system approach can work to improve health outcomes and lower costs. In the past four years under our Medicaid ACO contract, we've saved over $50 million. We have reduced inpatient hospital days by 24%. We've reduced 30-day readmission rate by over 25%. We've reduced ED visits by 8%. But really, what I really want to highlight is that because of our model, we engage 89% of our patients in care management. We also have 24% higher member retention than other networks. So it means our members stay with us over four months longer than the market average. And this really is reflective of the model that we don't just improve quality, lower costs, improve outcomes, but we're also really driving meaningful and material engagement. And so I just wanted to highlight that. Cheryl, thank you for sharing that history. It's really a great success story. And when I think of the success story that is being written, the current chapter we're in around COVID-19 is going to be an interesting one in the MHN history book. I recently read an article or a white paper from Canton and Company about FQHC resilience during the COVID-19 pandemic. It discussed how previous emergencies have acted as catalysts for disaster recovery and business continuity planning for some FQHCs. But there are a lot of others where the focus on day-to-day -day viability kind of limits their ability to prepare for unforeseen events. But the overarching theme is that despite the varying degrees of sophistication across the national FQHC landscape, all of them are defined by their resilience, their dedication to their mission, their ingenuity. I'd like to learn more about how COVID-19 has impacted MHN and tested its resilience. How has MHN been navigating this new normal financially, operationally, specifically regarding transition to virtual care? And have your population health teams been able to redeploy resources and personnel to meet critical needs? I know that you guys have used artificial intelligence, and we're going to talk more in depth about your historical use of that at a later point. But when we're talking about AI and COVID-19, can you talk to us about how you've leveraged AI to identify the patients who have heightened vulnerability for severe complications from coronavirus? So we've always been an agile organization. You know, people process technology and our, really our COVID response is a great example of how our infrastructure has positioned us to quickly innovate and further our mission. When COVID-19 hit, our chief medical officer, Dr. Art Jones, likened it to the 1995 heat wave in Chicago, where our city saw over 700 deaths in just a few days. And the high death toll was in those that were poor, elderly, and socially isolated. So we knew for our population of 140,000 lives 
that many of our members faced the similar structural and social barriers that came to surface in 1995. So we knew we had to act quickly. A couple of things we did is we initially worked with our health plan partner to move our federally qualified healthcare centers off fee-for-service into an alternate payment model to enable broad flexibility and full use of the care teams in virtual technology to reach out and connect our members to care and resources. And this would also provide predictable cash flow. And we also work to create pre-pandemic primary care using digital technologies and telephonic outreach to try and emulate pre-pandemic primary care in this COVID environment. But one thing we did was we used our health risk assessment data whereby we understand who is socially isolated and lives alone without friends or family, or who is homeless. And we mirrored that data with our other data and mapped to the CDC guidelines to create a targeted work list of those members that were most at risk during COVID. And that turned out to be about 15,500 of our 140,000 members. And we immediately deployed these lists to our care teams so they could reach out to these members first because they were socially isolated and we wanted to ensure they knew who to call if they needed to be connected to care or resources. In terms of our FQHCs, it has been amazing how our providers quickly responded with a sense of urgency and pivoted almost over a weekend with new approaches to address the healthcare needs of their patients. They transformed to adopt telehealth and virtual care. So. As I said, we first focused on pivoting our risk stratification to ID those most at risk for COVID so we could proactively reach out for education, screening, and intervention. We already had the social data on our patients, and we were able to adjust our AI-powered risk stratification to identify members that were socially isolated, living alone, or homeless, at high risk for hospitalizations from a COVID infection, and not socially isolated, those that were homeless, and those that were overly just high risk from a care management standpoint. We mobilized our care management teams and began proactive outreach for these groups. Today, we've actually made over 35,000 outreach calls. Our initial priority list was 15,000, but then of course we added the rest of our population and we're up to over 35,000 outreach calls. The last thing we wanted to do was for patients to be flooding the ED if they felt sick. So we used our approach to educate patients, make sure they had the necessary resources to stay at home, obtain food, order medications. And what we also found is this whole outreach approach was really important to patients, especially those that were socially isolated. They really appreciated the welcome, friendly voice and just knowing that people cared about them. The other thing we did is we leverage our real-time alerts or our ADT connectivity. So we also know when a patient who's a COVID suspect case presents at one of our connected hospitals. And that again, allows our care teams to be alerted and do proactive outreach to help educate the patients on how to keep them and their families safe, how to isolate or make sure they have necessary resources. 
and how to actively manage any chronic conditions. Thank you, Cheryl. And as we were preparing for this episode, we were thinking a lot about the safety net population you serve. I mean, Cook County is the most populated county in the state of Illinois. Beyond that, it's the second most populated county in the U.S., I believe only behind Los Angeles County. To help our listeners understand what that means, with over 5 million people, the county has a larger population than half of the states in the United States, which is just really mind-blowing to think about. But beyond just dealing with the devastating crush of this coronavirus, Cook County has also been dealing with alarming spikes in violent crime, drug overdoses, suicides, and that's a big lift for your population health team. Yet your ACO continues to beat the odds by improving outcomes for the population you serve. And a big part of your success, as I understand, is that you're not trying to boil the ocean. Instead, you have laser-like precision when it comes to knowing exactly which patients in your safety net need specific interventions like primary care, care coordination, transportation assistance, being connected to local social services to address food and housing and substance abuse issues and things like that. So as an ACO, your team is quite calculated in every phone call it makes to make sure that every intervention that's applied has the optimal impact. In this identification of risk through addressable medical, behavioral, and social factors has been brought about by this AI model that you reference, and also having real-time data connectivity and a proprietary care management platform that you've been able to develop to ensure the right care at the right time. And I know there's a lot to explore here, but before we get into things like social determinants of health and behavioral health integration, let's first talk about this technology enablement. So I have two questions. First, can you describe how you were able to establish connectivity for intelligent coordination throughout the entire MHN network through your MHN Connected Health Information Network? And then second, how are you able to use health risk assessment screening data and AI modeling to improve allocation of care management resources? Sure. Happy to share. So our journey, again, started about 11 years ago. Early on, when we were charged with how do we transform delivery in the safety net, we really saw a need for functional technology that could virtually integrate disparate entities, dismantle silos, and organize complex data from various sources to create data liquidity to support seamless, intelligent care. So in Chicago, we created a hub that we call MHN Connect, and we linked 30 hospitals with ADT, so real-time alerts, to over 400 medical homes, today 33 behavioral health community-based organizations, to communicate and collaborate and create a 360 patient view of the patients. And we also wanted this hub to be able to link care teams to patients and data in one another. So we were trying to create care management without boundaries. So we had vision alignment to do this, not only with who we call our medical home network, but also with other hospitals in the community who were really looking to support right care, right place. So we started on our journey to create this connected network. And what was distinctive about our approach is when we said we were connecting hospitals to share real-time alerts. We didn't just provide the real-time data, but we put it in the context of historical data, historical claims, pharmacy data and risk factors, and social determinant data. We turn these real-time alerts into actionable prioritized tasks. Today, 
we capture about 80% of our patients' facility activity as it happens. But what was really important in all of this is that there was enough context where people would understand, what do I do with this? And we also have moved to recognize the importance of being able to communicate effectively with community-based organizations, not on EHRs. And so not only does our hub enable data exchange, but it also enables bi-directional communication with care teams at the medical homes. So we can communicate across all venues and settings about a patient and communicate using a common care plan. So again, the beauty of our connectivity is that we can mobilize the right resources for the right patients at the right time. We took this to get to your second point and we said, this is great. So we have great real-time data in context of historical data, 360 view, great data liquidity. But what we really want to do is figure out how to organize this, not just to drive workflow and prioritize tasks, but how we could supercharge it through our better risk stratification methodology, which would not only allow us to identify the high risk, but also allow us to identify the rising risk. So traditionally to risk stratify, most people use diagnosis and claims and focus on the super utilizers. But we recognized the impact of social determinants on outcomes. So we hypothesized that we could improve upon the traditional risk stratification methodologies by screening on 11 impactable social and behavioral barriers to compliance with care plans, such as transportation or needing help with food or housing. And we predicted that these factors would be predictive of subsequent cost and utilizations. So we created a standardized risk screening assessment. We tied our responses to actual utilization in the subsequent 12 months, and we actually proved it was predictive, and we've published on this. So we proved that we could identify not only the high risk, but who was likely to become high utilizing or high cost, which we call the rising risk. And this informs our whole approach to care management. And the punchline for us was that social factors increase healthcare costs regardless of past hospital utilization. So if you're in our population and you had just one social risk factor, that increases your cost by 60%. Two to five social risk factors, with no medical would increase your cost almost two times. So we took this approach and we then applied artificial intelligence to it. We have now, instead of doing this risk stratification approach based on social determinants point in time, we do dynamic risk stratification on a daily basis. And AI allows us to bring in all the data we collect through the hub, claims, pharmacy, real-time alerts, other care management data, and every day identify if somebody has had a change in risk. And if they have had a change in risk, we bring this forward in the form of work lists to our care team members. So AI has allowed us to even more precisely focus on the right people and focus the right resources on those who need it. And also even predict with greater precision patients that we weren't able to do a risk screening on, predict their risk better than traditional methodologies. So again, 
we can prioritize the right care on the right people. Cheryl, I like the term you use, predicting with greater precision. That predictive specificity, the business intelligence you've been talking about, it's really quite outstanding with what you've been able to acquire through your technology infrastructure. You know, we see a lot these days in headlines about artificial intelligence and machine learning, other intelligent technologies. And I'm, I have to be honest, my natural tendency is to be skeptical and to think these are sensationalized. But with the MHN model of care, it seems to be the real deal when it comes to creating a better whole person care, lowering costs and improving those outcomes. And these results, they really go beyond having just actionable insights. As you've talked about, it comes down to the execution. And for MHN, that execution revolves around the collaborative care program. As I understand, you've deviated from a centralized network approach that most ACOs utilize, and you have what you call a practice-level care management model, builds on established relationships and shared incentives in alignment with the practice. The program has driven health outcomes by demonstrating a 37% reduction in total social risk factors that are impacting health. It's reduced readmissions by 14%, outperforms the external health plan network on utilization metrics and costs, and most impressive, has an engagement rate of 89%, which is unheard of given the extreme vulnerability and complexity of the patients you serve. Can you describe how that collaborative care program is able to generate these types of results and how does the program balance the medical complexity behavioral health and social determinants to provide the type of whole person care needed to drive really effective population health. Sure, Daniel, happy to do so. Let me start with saying we aimed to create a sustainable value-based model for patients and providers with a model of care that responds to the full view of patient health and social risk. We built this tech-enabled, standardized, whole person, community-based model of care practiced across the federated network, as you said, to deliver continuity of care, quality, and foster patient engagement. This optimized care model of delegated care really binds the inclusive care team in service of the patient. So let me talk a little bit about what that means. Our care model specifically is a decentralized team-based approach, which for us means we drive care management to the primary care practice level. We have interdisciplinary care teams that are embedded and employed by our primary care practices. And we did this to build off the relationships with primary care and build trust with our members. We believe the primary care practice level is the best place to build long-term trusting relationships with the patients we serve. So our care teams, a combination of licensed and unlicensed professionals, are delegated for care management across the continuum. And we've created an integrated process between primary care and hospitals to facilitate this. One thing we do is create integrated workflows to identify behavioral, social, and medical. For example, we are working with community behavioral health centers to work with us on transitions of care, actually join our mobile care teams when patients are hospitalized, and create appointments at the community behavioral health facility before the patient is discharged. We also work to use our real-time alerts to identify patients who we haven't been able to engage when they go to the emergency room and 
send a care team member to the ED to begin to build a relationship to see the patient in the hospital and work to understand that patient's needs, build trust, and begin to build a relationship to enable the patient to go into care management. We also leverage competencies of all of our partners. For example, University of Chicago has a really good home visiting program for discharge pediatric care. And we coordinate with our hospitals to leverage their competencies in an organized and coordinated manner. Wow, Cheryl, that's, those are great successes that you're talking about. It sounds like there's a patient story in there somewhere. There absolutely is. There's actually a lot of patient success stories, but let me share one. And I really love this one. So when our MHN Transitions of Care nurse first visited this one patient, Joe, he had just been at University of Chicago Medicine where he was admitted for heart issues. He'd undergone surgery for multiple stents and he'd been instructed that he needed to wear a cardiac life vest at all times. And this was a serious prognosis. Joe already had a variety of complicating factors, including diabetes and ongoing struggle with depression. He was chronically homeless and he had no family or other social support systems. So despite the many health challenges confronting Joe, his most immediate health goal was to have bilateral cataract surgery to correct his vision but no doctors would clear him for the procedure, citing the severity of all the other conditions and Joe's previous lack of compliance with doctor's orders. So feeling that his health goals weren't being taken seriously, Joe decided to leave the hospital prematurely without his life vest. So the MHN Transitions of Care nurse found out about this, worked with the hospital and the clinical staff to locate Joe in the community, found him in the community, delivered his life vest to him, and took the first steps to build a relationship with Joe. And this included taking his own health goals into account and educating him about his cardiac health and controlling his diabetes and telling him that if we can do this, you know, he could be medically cleared to have the bilateral cataract surgery. And that was really a game changer because we aligned care management with the patient's hopes for his own health. And I love this story because it's such a great story and now it's such a great outcome. Joe is totally engaged in care management. He calls his MHN member of the care team every day, almost, at least every day during any transition of care periods. He speaks regularly with his primary care and behavioral health teams. Care management has really worked to obtain stable housing for Joe. And care management also worked to facilitate a reunion between Joe and his daughter. And now she has become part of his support team. And the best quote I've heard is, something in healthcare has changed. And for that, I'm truly grateful. And this was a quote from Joe, the patient. So I really love this story because I really think it exemplifies the power of the care model and the trusting relationships and really care management without boundaries in service of the patient. So I do wanna comment, you noted that you had some skepticism on AI and what I can share with you in the way we have been applying it with our partner Closed Loop, who's out of Austin, we've seen some really interesting results, including that we have reduced our false positives 
by 7% in one population and 25 in another. So that means that people that were identified low through our screening process have actually been identified as high using AI. And we also have the inverse. People identified as high through our screening process that were excluded from care management, but are low using AI. So this really allows us to focus on right resources, right care, and to identify people that should be in care management previously excluded. So that's a really great benefit about AI. It goes to the precision. Another sort of really great use of AI where we were starting to see a lot of big impact is using it to enhance our transitions of care process and understand who would benefit the most from transitions to care? Who is the most likely to be admitted within the next 30 days? Who is the most impactable for readmits? And we're starting to see huge benefit of using AI in this way. And we're, that's translating into a lower readmission rate. So again, right resources, right people, right time. Well, Cheryl, that's truly an outstanding program and producing the results that you need to lead this Medicaid HCO and execute on your care management agenda. But as I think about your population and caring for the most vulnerable in our society, we also have to ensure health equity and reduce disparities in care among different populations. And I wanted to explore this concept of racial disparities in care. When you look at the population health research, it shows us that the American healthcare system is not immune to institutional racial discrimination. African-American patients tend to receive lower quality care, including treatments for cancer, HIV, prenatal care, diabetes, preventive care. They also are less likely to receive treatment for cardiovascular disease. They're more likely to have unnecessary limb amputations. African-American men in particular have the worst healthcare outcomes of any major demographic group in our country. And health disparities also affect African-American women, leading to increased death rates from breast cancer, threefold risk of dying during pregnancy, significantly greater chance of dying needlessly from preventable diseases. And as I think of this current pandemic, communities of color are also being hit disproportionately hard by COVID-19 due to inadequate access to testing in African-American neighborhoods. For those that are able to get tests and treated, they're dying at a much higher rate of COVID-19, which reveals further inequities. And research has been able to irrefutably show that if you control for all these variables that contribute to health disparities like education, income, access to health insurance, African-Americans still get the worst quality healthcare of any demographic in our country. So all that said, I was reading about MHN before our discussion today, and I saw that Mayor Lori Lightfoot has put together a racial equity rapid response team back in June, really recognizing that Cook County and the greater Chicago area really needed to overcome health disparities in minority communities to ensure greater health equity across the city. Can you speak to the work that MHN is doing and as part of this community-based approach and, and how that's impacted your population health management strategy? Sure, Eric. So let me start by saying we are so lucky to live in a community where we have this really incredible coalition of the willing. We at MHN see the pandemic as a call to expand our duty of care and expand the impact that we're having on our communities. And 
as you say, you know, the pandemic has laid bare that the pre-pandemic health disparity among low-income populations and its direct impact on serious complications, including death from COVID-19. So here in Chicago, we are one small part of this really incredible group, the Racial Equity Rapid Response Group. It's organized by the mayor's office. It's coordinated by the Civic Consulting Alliance. It was part of the work that came out of Westside United and Dr. David Ansel and University of Chicago. So this great coalition of the willing, which is really focused on establishing best practices for community outreach and urging providers throughout Chicago to participate and do their part to combat the issue. So when we think about our racial equity response and this great coalition of the willing we have in Chicago, the coalition was initially launched in response to COVID-19 and also obviously in the wake of the horrifying events that have taken place. But the group has really expanded the work and our focus is beyond the pandemic. Systemic racism is a threat to the health and well-being of our community, and it's truly a public health crisis. So this coalition that's come together has made a commitment to be a part of the solution, and we have developed an outline of intentional steps and actions that we, both as an industry and individual organizations, need to take to make real change in our communities. And what's really exciting is this group has initially joined forces to focus on COVID-19 and its disproportionate impact on minority neighborhoods, but it's really grown into something that will continue on beyond COVID-19 and really talking about how we reduce disparity and systemic gaps in care across our community, again, more intentionally and collectively as a local coalition. So that's really exciting. So we know systemic racism is a real threat to the health of our patients, families, and communities. And this group has taken a number of steps to be part of the solution. Some of the steps that the group is taking includes providing testing, direct care, and contact tracing while partnering with the city of Chicago to provide services, access to groceries, access to pharmacy, essential items, housing, emergency housing. There's a lot of work that's also coming out of this with hiring, creating hiring programs that build pipelines for people of color to find careers. In addition to connecting to care and resources, and another really interesting byproduct is the listening aspect of this when you bring a coalition together to really understand more about our patients and commit to be better community partners. So there's the immediate investments to connect to care and resources COVID related. And then there's the broader thinking about other things we need to address as community, like hiring and other community investments to keep dollars in the community and create jobs and rebuild local economies. So we're really proud to be a part of this really ambitious coalition. Cheryl, I love that update, and it's such an important topic. I know there's another topic that's quite important to you and to your chief medical officer, Art Jones, and that's the work that you've been doing with behavioral health integration. MHN's done particularly well with this. For example, in the treatment of depression, 
43% of your engaged patients with depression have achieved a clinical response to treatment, which is great. 20% of engaged patients achieve full remission from depression altogether. Recognizing it's a major challenge in your population, of the 140,000 Medicaid patients that are in your network receiving care from MHNACO, more than 15,000 were recently identified, as you mentioned, as socially isolated. You've identified those who are homeless, those who live alone, and those who've indicated they have no close friends or family to care for them if they become sick. The issue of behavioral health is especially compounded in our current environment because of the need to socially isolate for the sake of public health, which is having a, a negative impact on loneliness, especially with older adults. As we're thinking about behavioral health integration, that needs to take place between health systems, physician practices, the community at large. And what lessons do you have to share? How has the integration of behavioral health into primary care been impacted by COVID-19 from what you've seen in Chicago? And, and when you think of your services pre-COVID versus now, how have things changed and which changes do you foresee being permanent? Yeah, that's a lot. A lot of really important things. So let me let me start with what we've done with the collaborative care model for depression. So this was a really good use case of what we call e-consults. We started with integrating primary care and behavioral health by launching the collaborative care model. And this is a model to support depression management and screening in, pri in a primary care setting for our patients. And the classic model requires paying for two hours of psychiatry per week to come to the primary care practice. But especially in Medicaid, you know, psychiatric time and resources are limited and really expensive. So we decided to modify the traditional collaborative care model and leverage psychiatry using e-consults. So virtual exchange between our primary care medical homes and psychiatry. And we used e-consult to adjust medications, provide other ongoing support, care management support, and when we needed to escalate a case to a face-to-face -face visit. We used this as a way to create a streamlined workflow and make sure we had immediate escalation. So as you referenced, by integrating this virtual aspect to the collaborative care model for depression, we did have great results and our results were as good as any national results we could find in the literature. So 43% of our patients engaged uh, achieved a clinical response to treatment and 20% of those were in full remission. And our patient population was over 2,700 lives. So that was really a great experience and great foundation for us to build on more broadly when we think of behavioral health and primary care integration. And especially in a COVID environment, we had a good infrastructure and ability to exchange data already established with several behavioral health providers where we could leverage that to foster broader integration of physical and behavioral health. So we have launched recently a more comprehensive holistic integration of primary care and behavioral health. And part of what this means for us is we are integrating behavioral health not only into our workflows, but also into our value-based reimbursement model. So we are 
incentivizing our behavioral health partners for working with us for outcomes measures and process measures. And we're going beyond depression and we're focused on severe mental illness and substance abuse right now. And we really think that creating a value-based alignment is critical to accelerating our development and our efficacy on this front, but also that new models of reimbursement going to alternative payment models, which enable the broadest flexibilities and use of the care team is really important to, again, any kind of integration. But in our case, we're very focused on the medical and the behavioral health integration. Cheryl, I was fortunate to have conducted a site visit with you and the MHN leadership team in Chicago last year. And I remember you talking about the unique egalitarian governance model that was established at MHN early on and how this was key, absolutely crucial to driving results. Your governance structure, as I understand, includes a 12-person governing board that's represented by the FQHCs and the hospitals that make up MHNACO. And in the formation of this board, you actually decoupled ownership and governance and created a balance of power between the health centers and the hospitals. And I'm struck by how you as a leader were able to navigate the politics in forming a governance structure where you didn't allow those with the biggest pockets to have the biggest voice. Unfortunately, other ACOs have not succeeded with their governance due to the boardroom politics and the misalignment between providers and community purpose. Can you speak to how you were able to pull that off? I mean, how, how did you create such a strong governance structure early on in the ACO and how has it contributed to your success over the course of time since you created the risk-bearing entity, which is MHN ACO LLC, which has been established in partnership with MHN. So Eric, thanks for the kind words. This is something that we've been really excited about and excited to share. So I really think it starts with, this is an example of culture change. And we like to say that we've turned traditional competitors into collaborators. So our organizational structure evolved from an informal collaboration to a formal clinically and financially integrated entity. We were started as a foundation funded collaboration. So one thing we did early on is the foundation brought a number of CEOs to the table. So we, we leveraged the gravitas that the foundation had in the marketplace to get a number of CEOs to the table. And then we proceeded to organize around a shared vision and MHN served as the convener or the neutral broker. So early on, we brought CEOs to the table. We actually had a CEO only rule. We met quarterly. We built trust and common purpose around our table. We did have a runway to do it. It didn't happen overnight, but I think one really key element is we built relationships before we formed a governance structure. One of our rules was when you're around our table, you have fidelity to the goals and aims of the coalition and people needed to check their identities at the door. Our vision really required enlightened leadership who understood that true collaboration would benefit the health of the shared communities and the providers we served. And we were fortunate to have that at our table. We really 
formed a vision for what we could do differently together. And at every step of our evolution, we built shared accountability and sustaining momentum. So when we formalized our organization, we had a history of accomplishment, a history of trust and common purpose, and we had built relationships where our providers around the table understood that we needed to have a new paradigm of balance. And the table agreed that we needed an egalitarian approach. That was the construct we needed to have true transformation and true consensus. And as you say, historically, the hospitals have the deepest pockets, but our hospital leadership recognized that the transformation vision we had would not work if they were the predominant decision makers. And it was in their best interest to not disenfranchise the FQHCs and the other entities and dominate the decision-making process, but instead create this egalitarian approach to community-based care redesign. Cheryl, MHN is closely aligned with the ACLC and its focus on workforce development. Our chartered purpose as a nonprofit is to support reskilling and upskilling of the healthcare workforce to support value-based care delivery. I'm excited to see that you share our passion in that for bridging the gap between workforce talent and value-based readiness. And so with the goal of supporting development of a capable professional practice level care coordinated workforce, I know you've created a care coordination certificate program, has three educational domains that are covered, including clinical, behavioral, and motivational interviewing. I think our listeners would be interested in, in hearing how this endeavor unfolded. And what difference are you seeing from care coordinators related to their performance after completing this program? And finally, how can the ACLC support your efforts in workforce development? Thanks, Daniel. So we committed to workforce development because we saw the need to better equip and develop the skills of our unlicensed workforce. They have more frequent task-based interactions with patients, and we wanted to enhance the quality of those interactions. So this is for care coordinators and community outreach workers. And we wanted them to gain basic insight into early symptom identification, patient education, improve their motivational interviewing skills, and gain basic insight into when, how to appropriately escalate to care managers. So our clinical integration team, along with Rush University Medical Center, developed a, I think it's a 15-module certification program as a means of testing how well our care coordinators integrate the classroom learning into the practice setting. The goal was to enhance performance in the practice setting. And the program's been really popular, well-attended, We've learned that we need to focus even more or provide more motivational interviewing content, but we have graduated, I believe, about 180 care coordinators to date in our 15-module program. And in terms of what we've seen, the training has really improved care coordinators' uh, critical thinking skills, improved how they interact with their patients, they're more autonomous within their role, but when I think about the ACLC efforts and how you can further support workforce development or support your partner organizations, 
I think it's a really interesting question. And I think one thing that we really struggle with right now is provider and care team burnout. It's, you know, in the context of today, it's even a bigger issue that's been surfacing and creating resources or standardized approach for how we can support our care teams, I think could be a really interesting enhancement. I, I also think when we think about workforce development, we always think about building the future workforce. So I think there's a lot of opportunity to help us support internships, creation of internships, standardized approaches to onboarding, anything to help us build and support a pipeline of a workforce for both the care coordination and community outreach roles, as well as other areas that are really relevant to new models of care, like data and analytics, so data science, or some other, some other areas. So those are some ideas that come to mind. Well, Cheryl, we uh, definitely commend you for having the vision to develop this program for your care coordination team and workforce development really hits home with us. And, you know, this is an important thing and for our industry as it transitions to value-based payment. And we're real excited here at the ACLC to be collaborating with MHN as a new member in our learning collaborative and definitely look forward to continued discussions on that front. So I'm just thinking, Cheryl, as we've talked a lot about different things. And I, I know MHM has like seven pillars, which really represents in totality its entire population health program from organizational structure, practice transformation, workforce development, of course, which we just talked about. There's communication and connectivity, care management, analytics, patient engagement, and then there's value-based payment. And I thought that would be the one last pillar I wanted to ask you about today. I, as I understand, your ACO is continuing to look at growing its population and expanding its contract portfolio. And I learned recently that there's a new subsidiary of Medical Home Network uh, that was established called More Care. And More Care is a Medicare Advantage special needs plan, which began enrolling members last October for a January effective date this year. How has the launch of the More Care MA plan gone so far? And what is the outlook? Do you expect that this new plan will increase the percentage of beneficiaries who choose Medicare Advantage in Cook County? And how does this plan differ from other MA plans that are out there in the market? Yeah, thanks for asking, Eric. Based on our success with Medical Home Network and Medicaid, there were a bunch of factors that came together and the time was right for us to go up the value chain and instead of being a high value integrated delivery network, to form a Medicare Advantage plan in partnership with Cook County Health. And so we, we did that, we launched that, and everything was going great until COVID. So it's been, it's been a little bit of a, of a tricky time to be a new Medicare Advantage plan, but it is going well. I think some interesting things about what we did is we did launch a Medicare Advantage and MAPD product, but we really focused on special needs products. We launched an institutional and institutional equivalent and a chronic condition SNP for HIV. So we specialize in models of care for the more medically complex. And so 
we thought it was a perfect synergy to work to crack the code in a very focused way in the medically complex for Medicare Advantage. And so we took all our experiential learnings from Medicaid and we've used them for Medicare. And so to date, despite COVID, the launch has gone really well. Uh, we are a small plan, but we launched, we had COVID, so the world sort of stopped and nobody was growing. And now we are back into a very targeted growth mode. But what's really been most exciting for us is the early indicators of the Medicare Advantage plan. We have a lot of members who are in supportive living facilities. And during COVID, we compared the hospitalizations of our members to the members that were not in our Medicare Advantage plan. And it's early days, but there is a dramatic difference between the more care hospitalizations and the non-more care hospitalizations in the supportive living facilities where we have members for our special needs plan. So early indicators are that the model is really beneficial to the members and really driving significant outcome data. Well, Cheryl, I've, I've really enjoyed this conversation with you today. And as Eric mentioned, we've covered a lot of topics. And I'd like to wrap up today by asking, what do you think the future of medicine looks like? If you're to make a prediction based on what you've seen in your market, you know, what you've seen nationally, are we as an industry going to win this race to value? That's a big question. Let me tell you, I think the future is creating systems of care that impact health. We need to continue to crack the code and make whole person care work. We need to fix the broken system. We need to reduce systemic gaps in care and social determinants that impact health. And we need to stop paying more for worse outcomes. And to me, all of this requires new thinking and new partnerships. I really do think non-traditional partnerships, competitors as collaborators, and also partnerships with new stakeholders and disruptors or non-traditional partners are gonna be a part of the future solution. I think personalized care, high touch, high tech, is also gonna be necessary and a part of the future. I think technology is part of the story. You have to not only be able to communicate, connect, and collaborate, but really use technology intentionally and precisely to identify risk, engagement, personalization, build trust, and help everyone in their own journey to attain optimal health. We are really proud to be a part of driving meaningful change and reshaping care delivery in our little market. And we're gonna work to accelerate our development and do what I really think needs to happen, which is create a system of care that impacts health. Cheryl Lulius, President and CEO of Medical Home Network and MHN ACO LLC, thank you so much for joining us today in this race to value. So Cheryl, how can people find out more about the great work that you're doing there at Medical Home Network as well as your Medicaid ACO? So Eric, that's a great question. We have a LinkedIn page, we have a web page and a newsroom, which lists any of our publications or a lot of our releases on our programs. So I think those are the two best ways. Our website is medicalhomenetwork.org 
And we also have our LinkedIn profile at Medical Home Network. Thank you, Cheryl. Enjoyed our time today. Me as well. Thanks to both of you. You guys asked so many really amazing questions. The depth and breadth is amazing. Eric, I didn't know you listened that well to us. And I'm really serious about the ACLC. I don't know if this is in your roadmap, but burnout is such a huge deal. And we're looking really ad hoc versus creating content. It would be, I think, a really great thing for you guys because it's not ending anytime soon. I don't know if that's on your roadmap. And we're really thinking long and hard about how to build the pipeline. In our case, we're going to do data science and create internships from under-resourced communities. So part of that involves, you know, a really organized system of training and mentoring. And I think you guys could be a leader in this space and we'd be happy to work with you. We're going to do it with an organization in Chicago, and we're going to do a cluster of three to four to start with. But we could, we'd could we love to build a program with you or leverage your resources to help us build and expand this program. That's a great idea, Cheryl. I, you know, we're going to think about that. I, I just think it's such an important thing. I think Don Berwick appropriately calls it the quadruple aim for a reason or the triple aim plus one. So it's something we're going to have to figure out and it's not going to go away anytime soon. Dan, with it, you know, we should definitely talk about that and to see how that could fit into our programming. And, uh, but yeah, we're excited to just have the opportunity to collaborate. Thank you so much, everyone. Thank you, Cheryl. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Cheryl.